This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 16th. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. Well, here's hoping you enjoyed last Last week's many voices of franchising. It was certainly fun putting that together and hearing from so many and so diverse a collection of voices. Well, I'd say it was nothing if it wasn't a multicultural collection of newbies, veterans, leadership, and luminaries. Well, this week we shift gears and return for this month's episode of the Rising Stars of Franchising right here on Franchise Today. This month I showcase Shuck and Shack CEO Jonathan Wethington. I absolutely love this brand. Think of it as a family vacation experience rolled into a restaurant where the bar is actually the captain and the franchise owner is the first mate. It's a gathering place full of all types of people who just want to have fun, where you can spend quality time with those you love most and where strangers are just friends you haven't met yet. On one hand, Shuck and Shack features fresh, high-quality seafood like you'd find in a white tablecloth establishment, but in an atmosphere more like a boathouse. And on the other hand, certainly way upstream from what you'd expect to find from fast food. What impresses me most about this brand is its leader and all the right things he's doing to sustain the growth as he scales the brand. That's why Jonathan Wethington is this month's rising star, and he'll be here in two minutes or less to tell us all about it. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, franchisors of restaurants, bars, grills, and taverns, and multi-unit franchisees, listen up. This message is for you. Atmosphere TV wants to help you cut costs on overpriced cable TV for your business and either replace it completely or partially if sports programming is essential at your locations. What Atmosphere TV provides are 100% free programming options with more than 50 channels of highly engaging and entertaining programming that is audio optional and guaranteed to please your customers and even increase their average ticket per visit. So here's how it works. Atmosphere hooks you up with an Apple TV HD receiver loaded with more than 50 channels of fully licensed, no cost to you, fun and lifestyle programming. These channels include Chive and Red Bull TV. TV, bloopers, superhuman feats, and an array of viewing options that don't require sound to be enjoyed. And this offer is not just limited to restaurants or bars. No, any business with a TV screen in its waiting room can benefit from Atmosphere's free programming offer as well. So what are you waiting for? Cut the cord on overpriced cable and get Atmosphere TV with its 100% free, engaging, and entertaining programming options. Keep your guests happy while they wait to see you in Instead of watching the clock and their wait times, chiropractors, doctors, dentists, auto repair shops, anyone with TVs in your waiting rooms, jump onto this amazing offer today. And if you text the word FRANCHISE to 474747, Atmosphere will waive the $100 setup fee for the Apple TV HD receiver that they'll ship to you as well at no cost. Atmosphere TV, changing the way businesses view television. Find them online at atmosphere.tv and remember it. Text FRANCHISE to 474747 for the no-charge Apple receiver. Cut the cord and get rid of cable today with Atmosphere TV. 
Back in 2007, Shuck and Shack co-founders Matt Pickenin and Sean Cook had a craving for fresh oysters. Living in the sleepy coastal town of Carolina Beach, North Carolina, they figured it shouldn't be too hard to find an oyster bar, right? Wrong. Realizing they'd stumbled onto an unmet need in their local restaurant market scene, Matt and Sean hatched a plan to open their fresh oyster bar and seafood restaurant. Through cases of beer and plans scrawled on napkins, the pair's dreams materialized as a 900-square-foot monument to domestic seafood, cold beer, and laid-back fun for the locals. Shuck and Shack was an instant hit. But things didn't really get cooking until Jonathan Wethington joined the crew in 2014, first in franchise development and then very quickly becoming CEO. Jonathan Wethington, welcome to Franchise Today. Hey, thanks for having me, Stan. Well, it's a pleasure having you. It seems the more I learn about Shuck and Shack, the more I want to know. It's looking like something that fits right in my wheelhouse, no pun intended, but where you been? Right, yeah, we get that a lot. That's not uncommon. Well, I can't wait at the end of this interview to get in the car and head up to the closest one to me, which is what I'm going to do. So hopefully by the time this interview hits the air, I'll be able to have talked on the back end on the outro about my Shuck and Shack experience and no one is going to get in my shucking way i guarantee yeah. it <laughs> yeah and I, I think we'll deliver on your expectations too i feel confident of that well let's do what we always do at the beginning of these interviews jonathan let's take us back to how franchising found you when that was <laughs> and what you were doing when that happened sure so I'll, I'll even take you further back than that my first job ever was at postnet um and as everyone knows postnet is was a and is a uh, wildly successful shipping and packaging company and i happen to be sitting at a round table about a year ago uh, with Steve Greenbaum. And I said, Steve, I, I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for getting me into franchising. He said, what do you mean? I said, my first job ever at 15 or 16 uh, was working in a local postnet. Um, and so that was my original connection to franchising. I worked for a franchisee there. And, um, you know, that's what first and foremost made me fall in love with small business. And, and really, when you're looking at franchising as a whole, I think there's this there's this thought that franchising is an ivory tower where it's, well, it's not. It's a conglomeration of small businesses. And so that's what really made me fall in love with small business. But, you know, fast forward several years, I um, franchising, just like you said, found me. I was out of grad school working for an adjacent business. I saw Shuck and Shack being built and I became a fan uh, just as a customer. And so I, I watched it grow over the years. I became good friends with the owners. I went off and did several other things. Really loved the customer experience, loved customer service, loved small business. As I said, the guys, the owners and the founders started growing, opened a second location, which I helped them build. And then in 2014, early 2014, they called me and said, hey, we're thinking about this franchising thing. We don't really know our way through it. And I said, I'm not sure why you're calling me. I don't really know my way through it either. Uh, but they said, hey, we don't know where you fit, but we think you fit. Do you want to come help us do it? And I said, absolutely. And so that's how franchising found me. You know, there was no magical moment, I suppose. It was just kind of jumping in, which I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people do. So a couple of quick observations, and I'm happy to hear the Steve Greenbaum piece because Steve actually is the one-off. He's the guy who, as I say often on this podcast, unless you're born into franchising as part of a second generation of a family in franchising, like a Greenbaum or people like E.J. Titus to his dad, Ray, unless you're born in, you don't find your way here by intention. You find your way here 
here by accident. So interesting to hear that you had an even earlier experience working for PostNet. But some of the things that I observed that I find intriguing as we're doing this as a monthly installment of our rising stars of franchising. I see so many things white when I look at your website. I see a CFE after your name, and you've only been involved in franchising since you said 2014. So where did you go? I'm obviously CFE was a good place to start, but you had a learning curve, not only to come into a company, which I think you joined as a chief development officer or a VP of franchise development, but you very quickly became CEO. That's a very fast track when you don't know much about the business model of franchising to begin with. How did that all shake out for you? So I think at the crux and in the core of everything, me personally, I'm, a, I'm still a student day to day, even as I sit here running the company, so to speak, I'm still a student. I'm a sponge of everything. I, I think franchising in particular, the learning curve is steep. It, it is quite steep, especially learning the legalities of things, what you can do, what you cannot do, learning about, especially looking at even the minutia of it and financial performance representations and things like that. But for me, there was an intuitive nature to it. And, and I knew from a branding standpoint, as long as I had a great brand in front of me, which I do, I could figure out the rest. And I think, you know, for those looking to enter the industry and really looking to fast track their way to whether it's becoming C-level or, or simply at director level, or you just want to get your foot in the door, be a sponge. Not everything is figured out. I think the CFE program, Certified Franchise Executive Program, is a great program. It really gives you very strict guidelines, but at the same time allows you to determine your path. You go through the FranGuard program, Profit Keeper, all of those things. And for those who don't have a lot of even general business familiarity, it's just a good program. Program to be a student of. And so I kind of took a two-pronged approach. The first thing was talk to as many people in the industry as possible, attend industry conferences, get in front of people. And in that first prong, I was just blown away by how receptive other people are. Some of them even being competitors and saying, hey, this is how we do this. Or yes, of course, I've dealt with that issue before. This is how it works. This is how I made that decision. These are the conversations that I had with my franchise partners. This is the direction that we took things after evaluating all the all the avenues. And then the second pronged approach was try to legitimize things. And that was where the CFE portion came in. For me, being naturally a student, as I said before, I wanted a path to uh, I wanted a path to learning and to make it official. My, my undergrad degree is in political science. My master's degree is in international relations. Theoretically, I have no connection to franchising whatsoever. I couldn't be further from what franchising is in many ways. But the CFE gave me an opportunity to, to legitimize things, to pursue knowledge and to to surround myself with other people who not only have that designation, but really who created the program, which is a really neat thing. Your founders were business people before, if I read correctly, at least one of them, I think, had multiple business experiences or was something of a serial entrepreneur. What do you think led them to want to give up the reins to, to bring somebody in to manage it for them? Sure. I think and you're correct. One of the founders, Sean, is a serial entrepreneur and has several other business ventures. I think a big part of it is trust and having a really, really strong brand understanding, which if you're looking at franchising your business, or even if you're in the position that, that I was in, which is I am not a founder. I don't have that same connection as a founder to the brand that a founder-led brand might have. However, you've got to strip away all encumbrances and say, hey, I've really got to learn this brand inside and out. I need to spend time elbow to elbow with the founders. I need to think how they think or at least understand how they think in order to have that great brand connection. It takes time. It didn't happen overnight. Yeah, I did become CEO rather quickly in 
about a five month period. But that wasn't because I had all the answers. It was because I was willing to learn the right direction. I think the answer that you just gave is so close to saying I didn't have all the answers. I had all the questions. No question. I mean, that that's such a critical component of learning, number one. But in this, this industry or in this sector, so to speak, I think even when dealing on a day-to-day basis, I ask far more questions than I answer questions uh, because I have to know, I have to learn. Uh, and bringing on franchise partners and new franchisees in, into your system where they don't have that foundership, they don't have that connection either. There's a big impartation of knowledge and we have the expectation that they are also going to ask questions. And sometimes you're not going to know the answer and that's okay. You just have to communicate that really well. So are the founders, are they still involved in the business or are they completely onto other things? So one, the Sean, who I spoke of earlier, um, he's more of a silent partner. He still serves on the board of directors, you know, still gives general input on the direction of the business. The other partner, Matt Pickenin, he's day to day. Our office is kind of a, uh, across the conference room for one another. He's there every day. Uh, so yeah, I still have a great connection to both of them. I note something else that I think is critically important to the success and sustainability of an emerging brand. And that is that you seem to pay as much attention to culture as you do to product and service. And especially in today's environment where labor is just something that everybody's scrambling to try to figure out. It looks to me a lot like you guys spend a whole lot of time protecting the culture of your brand by protecting the people working in it. Talk a little about that. Sure. Well, I just don't believe a brand can exist without its own culture. Um, I, I don't believe in cookie cutter, black and white blase cultures that I, I don't think that gives any great market differentiation. Number one is the biggest is the biggest problem with not having great company culture. What differentiates you from the next competitor in the market? And if you can't answer that, and one of those answers being your company culture, I you know I'm a firm believer that you're doing it wrong. So company culture is you're right. It's at the forefront of what we're doing. We talk about it constantly. We have a really strong internal company culture. I think our employees know what to expect. Our company culture is a little more relaxed than you might find in a typical franchise system. But we believe that gives our employees, as it relates to employment and, and the labor market and all of those things, we believe that that lets our employees relax a little bit. So if you're talking about dealing with uh, frontline customers, especially on the customer service side, we don't have standardized greetings. We don't make people wear name tags. When people come into our restaurant doors, I don't care if I never hear welcome to Shuck and Shack. I want people to actually say, hey, how you doing? Have a seat. Because I wouldn't invite you into my home and say, welcome to my home. Where would you like to sit? I would say, hey, Stan, y'all come on in, have a seat. I'll get you a drink. And that's exactly what we're after. And that kind of emanates and even bleeds through from the bottom up. It starts with our frontline employees and them delivering on that company culture, them delivering even on that mission statement. And then it goes up back to us and saying, this is how we run our company. We're storytellers. We, we survive on anecdotal evidence. We love hearing when people are are blown away by the quality of product and the service that they get at our individual locations. And I think our frontline employees love that. And despite the tough labor market of 2021, we, we actually just wrapped up some of our year end for 2021. And in our company outlets, we reduced turnover by almost 30% in 2021 by just listening to people, which is a big part of our company culture. We just ask our employees questions. What are you going through? What do you need? How can I help you? Those things. And it makes a difference. When you say it's a little bit more lighthearted and a little more relaxed, you need to go no further than the front page of your website where you tell <laughs> corporate America to go shuck itself and to understand how, how relaxed that might be. I think it's great. So I'll tell you what let's do. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back from that break, let's get into the consumer side of the business and 
how people find you and what they find when they get there, and then how many more people do they bring back? I'm talking with Jonathan Wethington, CEO of Shuck and Shack, and we'll be right back. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. We are all familiar with Vistage, YPO, and EO. Well, now comes Zorforum, a somewhat similar type of executive group, but this one comes with a twist. Zorforum groups are exclusively for franchisors. Imagine a peer group for sharing and networking on a platform built exclusively for franchise executives. Zorforum members are afforded unparalleled access to best practices and some of the brightest minds within the franchising world through regular meetings and a dedicated communications platform. In this post-COVID world, a franchise-specific mastermind or peer group is an endeavor worth making time for. Zorforum groups of 6 to 10 will bring leaders together that are in similar situations, but with exclusivity in terms of their competitive sets, so that each can openly help others benefit from their respective knowledge, perspective, and experience with no fear of competitive loss. Network, learn, strategize, and remain motivated along your journey. Join a peer group, not just any peer group. Join the only one designed for emerging franchisors. Join Zorforum. Learn more at Zorforum.com. That's www.Zorforum.com. And my conversation continues with this month's rising star of franchising. We're talking today with Jonathan Wethington, CEO of a really fun-loving brand called Shuck and Shack. So let's talk about the consumer side. You pop into a marketplace that somebody's going to see this store coming in for the first time. There's not another one that they've seen before, more than likely with, what, 20 or so open today? That's correct. Yeah, we've got 16 open today, quite a few more under construction, and then a pipeline behind it. So what's the first thing you do to bring new people to, to come learn? And what's the first attraction? And then how do you over deliver on those expectations when they get there? So I think there's there's a multi-pronged approach uh, to that, as, as you'll see, in, as a part of what we do. There's there's a thought out approach. And, and the first thing is setting expectations. Hey, you're going to come to us. This is what you can expect. Number one, you're going to get great seafood. It's American wild caught seafood. It's caught in domestic waters, gives domestic jobs, all of those things. And so setting that expectation that what you're eating is number one, going to be safe, because I think there's a natural inclination of people to think, oh, I've never had this product before, especially when you're talking about raw oysters. How do I know that it's not going to make me sick or something like that? So the integrity of the product being a number one. Number two is the experience in looking at saying, hey, we actually are going to offer you not only an exceptional product, but you're going to have a great time enjoying it. And that's what I was referring to earlier in that we strip away all the encumbrances of our front of the house staff, our bartender servers, all those folks and say, be yourself. And I used to say, I don't say it as often. I should start saying it more. Be the person your grandma thinks you are. And that's what I want our frontline employees to think is that, hey, all of these nice things about you, that's who, that's what you should be uh, when you're dealing with customers, when, when you're working with customers and you're serving customers. And kind of go on a quick aside here is a part of the interview process and looking at our frontline employees, why on earth would we ask them what their strengths? are and not allow them to use those strengths. So that's been kind of our approach. It's, it, I think it's pretty pragmatic. A lot of times we're breaking what we view as bad habits, which is turning people into robots. And so that's a, that's another approach into the customer. And then number three, you're going to want to come back. We believe that we're going to we're going to deliver on those first two things: great food and beverages. 
exceptional service, fun service, genuine, authentic service that's filled with great conversation. And it's going to want to make you come back and tell your friends. So that's kind of our approach. That's, that's generally how we market things. We know exactly who we are and that's what we market on the front line, whether it's digital marketing or more traditional marketing. And then it, of course, is up to our staff and our franchise partners to deliver once someone walks in the door. So with restaurants like yours up and down the east or the west coast coastlines, I can understand and see how you accommodate the need for fresh, sustainable seafood. What do you do in a country like ours where we're more landlocked than not? Sure. So one of the things, obviously, is making sure that your supply chain is as bulletproof as possible. It's a little more difficult in 2021 and 2022 to do that. However, we work extremely hard on the back end. And we're not new to the seafood game. We've been doing seafood for almost 15 years at this point. So we know what we're doing. We know the integrity of the product and the quality of the product that we're after. And we work with a national supply chain partner. So we buy with about 1,400 other units nationwide. So it's it's similar to a GPO, but they also manage our supply chain pretty intently. It is a daily thing for us. So making sure that the locations that we're going in, their nearest broadliner warehouse has agreed to carry the products that are our bread and butter products, so to speak. You would be surprised that we're a natural fit on the coast, obviously. We're a coastal brand. Our original store is is a baseball throw away from the ocean. And so that, that's pretty easy. But when we go inland and we bring the product that we're bringing inland, people are blown away. You're talking about turning what might be a dining experience once or twice a year when you take a family vacation to the beach into something that they can do weekly or a couple of times a week. Um, and so that's that's been, it's been a great payoff for us. Our inland stores perform extremely well because of those things. Great segue into another question, supply chain being what it is today. And I'm certain that you're not bulletproof there any more than anyone else right now with all that's going on in today's economy. But what about on the cost of goods side? I've been in the wing business for years and I've seen something in 21 that we've never seen before. We've seen the rise of price of chicken wings, but I've never seen chicken wings on a menu anywhere where they were priced at market price. That's something I'm used to seeing in a fine or better seafood restaurant, but certainly not in a wing place. So when we're talking about shellfish and we're talking about expensive fish, what do you do to, to combat the economy today and inflation hitting us as it is? What is that doing to your menu? What is the shortage in gasoline or the gas price and getting product to you? How does that work to keep your your prices in line so those consumers that do love you can afford to come back once or twice a month. Sure. So we're, we're doing three things. Uh, the first thing happens really behind the scenes. It's it's a portion that the consumers don't see at all. That first thing being we're taking a hard look at our supply chain. We're taking a hard look at quite literally every single product that we serve in the store and making sure that we can serve that product for the long term. So it's quite literally, it's a daily review of those things. What does the supply look like? What does the burn rate look like on this product? Is our alternate product or our alternate source, are they well sourced on that product? Can we pull that product from another place? So we're doing that, number one. Number two is we're making buying decisions on the back end. Formerly, whenever we were talking about buying seafood, especially when you're looking at something like shrimp or crab legs or, or whatever it may be, we could buy as much a, as a year at a time or do purchase commitments for a year at a time. Now that that burn is much quicker. And so we may be, uh, we, we kind of have to be, for lack of a better term, Johnny on the spot with those things. We're making quicker decisions in the best interest of our franchisees. So if a broker comes to us and says, hey, I've got X number of pounds, 
pounds of crab legs, do you want to take it? We pop it in our spreadsheet. We see that's going to last us for 30 days and we get right back to them and say, yeah, we'll take it. We'll make that commitment there. So that's kind of what we do on the back end to help our franchisees. And then on the front end, when we're talking about things that are consumer facing, a portion of our menu has always been market price because there is some natural market fluctuation to things. And you're right with gasoline and with shortages and no fills and all of those things, it's gotten more difficult. And and really the end output is on the customer. I was actually having this conversation with someone exactly last night. And I think customers, consumers, our guests have gotten better at understanding that, hey, we would love to serve you this product. We simply don't have it. And so educating the customer is a big portion of it. But then going back to the market pricing on our menu, there's always been a market price portion of our menu, but we have reprinted menus and we have redone menus and there's just simply more items that are market price. But as a part of that, you have to educate the customer on that and saying, hey, you used to pay $17.99 for this. It's gone up to $23.99. Here's why. You have to do that, especially on something that is commodities-based like seafood. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Wings are the exact same way. Chicken breast is the exact same way. The more you can educate your frontline consumers, I think they're generally speaking, their understanding of what's going on. I just think what I've seen over the years is people make adjustments according to those requirements. Somebody that was doing fine dining might step down to fast casual. Somebody doing fast casual might have to drop down to fast food. So where do you fit in that matrix? You're not fine dining, certainly not fast casual either, I don't think. Where do you fit? Yeah, we fit kind of in that middle ground. Uh, We serve what we consider a fine dining grade quality product at a reasonable price in an atmosphere that's closer to a beach shack than anything else. We want, regardless of what you're dressed in, what you look like, where you came from, we want you to feel comfortable walking in our doors. If you've got on flip-flops, that's great. If you've got on dress shoes, that's also fine too. So while we aren't everything to everyone, we are accepting of everyone that comes in the door. In our culture, it dictates itself. Certainly our decor and all of those things play into it. You'll know once you visit us, you'll know exactly what I'm saying, but we fit somewhere in between. And what about the men? you mix food versus alcohol? How does that look? Sure. Across the system, it's 70% food, 30% alcohol. And demographically, is it family or is it sure. a younger generation XYZ? You know, I'm glad you asked that. We actually, several years ago, we had probably eight or nine locations at this point. We paid quite a bit of money to do a, a major demographic research, a major demographics project, uh, rather with focus groups and all those things. And what we learned is that our customer is everyone. <laughs> There's There doesn't seem to be an exact customer profile for who we are. Of course, we have some minimum household incomes that are more likely to to dine with us more often, but it's almost evenly split between men and women. It's evenly split when you're talking about other demographics, age demographics. We typically don't see a big college crowd, especially not on on the dining side. We are above that fast food level pricing. Our average per, our per person average is between $17 and $19. So we're a little bit higher on that end. So that kind of determines who your crowd is. But you can walk into any single one of our locations and see anyone from someone in their first job who only visits us once a month, they save up to come to us, all the way to someone who's retired and has done exceptionally well in their career, belly up to the bar and enjoying beer and oysters. Let's flip gears and take a look at the franchise side of business and the profile of who a typical franchisee would be. I guess the first thing for me to ask in that regard is what type of offerings are you making? Is this locking up areas with developers or these mom and pop or owner operators? What's your sweet spot there? So a little bit of both. That sounds like I'm punting again, but it's the truth because, and I'll explain to you why. 
number one, we love secondary markets. While we do go into primary markets, big cities where there are high rents and you know there's great exposure from a demographic standpoint, we love going into markets where we simply don't have competition. And that's one of the nice things about looking at Shuck and Shack when you're talking about white space. There's a ton of white space available across the United States, but we love those commuter markets. Number one, we love bedrooms and rooftops. We want to be near people's homes. We want people to not have to drive 45 minutes into a central business district at evening, have a couple glasses of wine, uh, have a great seafood meal, and then have to worry about getting back home. We want to be five minutes from your house. That's where we place restaurants. Inevitably, what that means is when we're talking and we're backing into the franchise development side is that we get a mix of both multi-unit operators and single unit operators. I love both. Uh, both fit a natural place within our system. Our single unit, more mom and pop, so to speak, owner operators. This is not Jermaine to Chuck and Check. This is almost to every restaurant franchise out there. Those guys, partners or husband and wife or whomever it may be, they're going to be the bread and butter of your system. Their stores are going to perform really well. They have a natural inclination to run just a bit of a tighter ship because it's their job. This is a job they've been invested a lot of their life savings into possibly opening one of these locations or, or another restaurant franchise for that matter. And so they're going to run a little bit tighter ship. And then on the other side, we have multi-unit operators in our system. We have people that are developing two, three, five units within our system. And that typical multi-unit operator has a system in place, right? So they've got more often than not, they have other brands or they've been with other brands as either as multi-unit operators from a management standpoint or from an ownership standpoint. And so they kind of know the run of the mill. They know exactly what they need to do from a personnel standpoint. They're a little bit more invested. They've got layers of personnel that can backfill when necessary. And so our approach is two-pronged. We love single units. I love single units. I love seeing people's lives like actually change from opening a shug and check. In the same respect, we love multi-units as well. I mean, we're going to be at MUFC in a couple of weeks exhibiting there with a booth, myself and Matt. We'll both be there. And we're there because we know multi-unit guys know how to do it. And we love being in business with those people as well. I'm a little surprised that for a full service operation, you'll accept people with no restaurant experience. In today's world, penny profits more than ever are just vital, vitally important to properly manage in the restaurant business. I don't see any full serve type restaurant brands that would invite those in with no prior experience. So how do you compensate for that? We want you to be able to have a conversation with people. First and foremost, you've got to be able to talk to the general public. If you can do exactly what what you and I are doing right now, you can run one of our restaurants. And that's a little bit nuanced and boilerplate, obviously. But first and foremost, you're only successful because the guests that walk into your locations are happy. And the only way you make them happy, you serve an excellent product, you give them exceptional service, and they're going to come back. And so we are looking for people who are outgoing, who are involved within their community, who know how to talk to others, and who take all of those things very seriously. We believe that our concept, because we have stripped away a lot of that formality, and because our company culture is exactly what I previously described. We believe that we've simplified things exceptionally well. Our kitchen is not chef-driven. I'd had zero restaurant experience before joining Chuck and Jack. I had a little bartending experience. I ran a bar for a couple of years. Outside of that, I had zero restaurant experience. I could walk to one of our any one of our kitchens in our system right now and go cook. I mean, that's because we've simplified everything. And so that's why we still accept people with no restaurant experience. The caveat being, you've got to be outgoing, you've got to know how to talk to the general public, and you've got to have some basic leadership skills. So what do you do to protect the brand and its culture in terms of who you select for franchise development? Do you have a screening process? Are there some minimum requirements that people have to bring attitudinally, and how do you assure that that's there? Yeah, no question. That's the end-all, be-all of success, in my opinion. We succeed because our franchisees succeed, and if we put a bad franchisee in the system, we'll run into issues down the line. They may not appear right away, but down the line, 
line, they certainly do. But to answer your question, we work with Raintree on the franchise development side. They're out of Denver. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with them. I certainly am. They, yeah, they help us on kind of the front line as far as the, the lead generation and all of those things. But when it comes down to it, the approval day is where the rubber hits the road. After they've gone through kind of a peer review process and validation with our other franchisees, I do a one-on-one meeting with them before they arrive to approval day, uh, which is kind of the last lever for their approval into coming to approval day. And then when they arrive, the selling at that point is over. I think a lot of brands and, and us too, we used to use approval day as kind of a dog and pony show where, hey, have we sold you enough? Are you interested now? And while there still is that element to what we're doing on approval day, we've kind of flipped the script. The second half of the day is all executive interviews. We take our franchisees, we split them up into groups. We only allow four to five groups at a time for our approval days. And we split into four to five groups and they do a rotational executive interview. And that's important. We've got to know that number one, and I say this often, and I actually mean it, is that we like you. If we're going to spend 10 years and you're going to be running one of our locations and we're doing this together in a partnership, we've got to like one another. And that's a very pragmatic approach that may seem a little more boilerplate or a little more dubbed down, but it's the truth. I don't have any interest in spending a decade with someone I dislike. And I think our franchisees are the same way. We want them to like us as well. So that's a big element to it. So that, that's a big first step. And really how they react in a group is important. Putting four or five groups together that may be from different territories across the country or maybe impossibly interested in the same territory or neighboring territories. How do they interact with one another throughout the day? Do they jump right in? Do they talk to one another? Are they dejected? Do they sit in the corner? Do they not ask questions? Are they not outgoing? Those are all important qualitative things that we're looking at throughout that day. Sometimes we do callbacks so we don't quite feel if we want a more clarification after the approval date, we don't give approvals right away. They don't hear them that afternoon. Um, there's usually a 48 hour period of waiting. And sometimes we do callbacks and say, hey, you said this and I'm not quite sure what you meant by this. Or, hey, maybe you're a little shy on this aspect. Talk to me a little bit about this. We really have to know our franchisees because we are in the hospitality business. And the base word of that is being hospitable. And we have to understand that they are going to be hospitable to every person that's going to be walking into the restaurant doors. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that you deal with Raintree. I saw an ad that Brent ran just before the IFA, which had me laughing out loud. It was a rain tree ad to bring their brand and what they do to the attention of potential client franchise. Oh, yeah, well, rain tree sucks. <laughs> yeah they, they're, they're brilliant at that stuff. If you haven't seen that ad, go Google and find it. And if you don't laugh out loud, there's something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really good. What have I not asked you today, Jonathan, you wished I did? Listen, I, I think at the end of the day, regardless of whether it's Shuck and Shack or any other brand that you want to go into, especially when it relates to a consumer facing business, you got to be able to talk to people. You've got to be a nice person. You've got to get along well with others. And that's the only bit of advice that I would give to any people pursuing this industry, or it's going to be a really difficult time for you. Any benevolent causes that you as a brand are favoring or do individual franchisees make decisions on those issues independently? It's a little bit of a mix of both. We as a brand, we're part of the James Beard Smart Catch Foundation. So we take a really strong look at sustainability, long-term sustainability, plastic ocean project, all of those things. But then as a part of our community outreach and one of the requirements for our individual locations is 
how are you involved in the community? So everyone is required to have a consistent charitable relationship within their own community. And that's everything from veterans, Wounded Warrior Project, all of those things, all the way through cancer research and different things here and there, depending upon where you're located. And you are IFA members and you want to talk about your vet friend discount? Yeah, we are IFA members. Our vet friend discount is 10% off your franchise fee, whether it's a single unit or a multi-unit agreement. There's numerous veterans within our system and we love veterans. I mean, listen, you're talking about 7% of the population, 14% of the franchising world. They know how to follow a system. They tend to be exceptional people. We love them in our organization. They're excellent. All right. Well, I think you've demonstrated clearly why you guys have been selected as this month's rising stars in franchising. I'm going to hit you with one last question to put the nail on the head. Three books, three books that you would recommend to my audience would be what? Oh, goodness. You need to read Traction, Measure What Matters by John Dewar, Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. All right, perfect. How about sharing out some contact info as I'm certain there are going to be people tuned in today that are going to want to reach out and learn more? Sure. So you can go to shuckandshackfranchise.com. No G on the shuck and shuckandshackfranchise.com. Appreciate you being here with us today, Jonathan. Jonathan Wethington, CEO of Shuck and Shack, on their way to being five stars this month's rising stars here on Franchise Today. Thanks again for joining. Thanks, Dan. Well, I probably should have done this in reverse and gone to visit a shuck and shack before my interview with Jonathan, but life got in the way. But I did, however, get to their location in Cumming, Georgia, just hours after the interview, and everything we discussed for the podcast simply came to life. I'll tell you this, if the rest of their franchise network represents the brand as well as Mike Mitchell does in Cumming, Georgia, their selection process speaks for itself. Well, that's a wrap for today. See you back here at the same time next week. Until then, I'm Stan Friedman, wishing you the best, the very best of all things franchising, and Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.